This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 478, a conversation with Erlen Schumer. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 478. It's our conversation with Erlen Schumer. Erlen is a noted comic book historian and enthusiast. He's also an illustrator as, as well in the advertising and editorial markets. Uh, he's got a great website, erlenschumer.com. Uh, he's the, uh, the designer and uh, author of the Silver Age of Comic Book Art uh, book, which had an earlier edition in 2003 and then was uh, redone uh, more, more recently. And you can actually purchase that through his website website, erlenschumer.com. Um, Erlen and I recently uh, sat down to talk his career in comics, uh, or at least in comics history. Um, he actually has a very interesting history in terms of his own art, um, as well as who he's been in, in contact with, who he's interacted with, um, the books that he's written. Um, he's a big fan of comic books, especially the artistic aspect of comics, and wants to uh, basically you know, make sure that people understand that it's a graphic medium, it's a visual medium, and that there's more uh, consideration and um, thought put into highlighting the artistic contributions to the art form, because really you wouldn't have comics without the art. I mean, you, you'd, you'd have a few lines on a page telling you what happens, but you wouldn't be as dynamic without the amazing artists that have contributed to the, uh, the establishment of the medium. Along this, these lines, he's a huge uh, Neil Adams fan. He's worked with Neil Adams. Uh, he's a huge booster of Jack Kirby as well. He's a really interesting guy. We had a really good conversation. Uh, this is a conversation I'm going to call it a little bit raw and uncut. Um, uh, basically, Arlo and I had a, a conversation. Um, he is not afraid to call me out at a few things that I had originally been told that you should talk to this guy. He's a great comic book historian. He's got really interesting insights. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't actually read his Silver Age of Comic Book Art book and uh, didn't actually, I guess, look closely enough at his website to be able to purchase it there. And he definitely took me to task on this. And um, at the end, after we kind of end the interview itself, uh, we kept talking for a little bit, which I actually ended up recording. And he uh, does give us an anecdote about working for Neil Adams and the fact that there are no excuses in life. Well, there's two. There's two excuses that you're allowed. So stick to the very end to hear that. Um, as he uh, takes me to task for my preparation as an interviewer, um, we got along actually pretty well, and uh, we're going to have him on the on the podcast again in the future, uh, probably to talk about Flintstones, um, as well as to actually go more comprehensively through his book. Um, unfortunately, this episode is going up later than originally intended, um, as uh, there is... Um, uh, a presentation he was giving this past weekend um, on, I guess, May... I don't remember what date it is now, I guess the 20th. Um, so it's unfortunate just as a timeline issue, but uh, really interesting guy. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. And uh, let's jump right into the interview. Um, now, I should say as a preface that when Arlen and I first started chatting, usually when I, I call someone, we'll have a little bit of a preamble and then I'll start recording. And it was as we were kind of starting the have of this conversation that he basically turned the lens on me and said, I'm basically starting interviewing me as the, who are you? What, what, where have you come in your life that now you're doing a podcast? So I, I didn't record it right away, but, um, so we're going to kind of jump in in progress as he's basically asking my origin story and my intro into comics. And I know some people have asked, like, am I ever going to have an episode where I'm the interviewee? And this is kind of that. Uh, this is like, I think the first five or ten minutes are basically him kind of grilling me on, 
where do where do I get to this point uh, where I actually have a combo podcast and how do we end up getting connected and why are we talking to each other? Um, so, anyways, without further ado, uh, we'll jump right into the episode. Um, really, really fun time, and hope you enjoy the episode as well. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Next week should be a conversation with Alex Saviak if we're able to complete it. Uh, people who've been listening to the show know that uh, part one was done two months ago. Uh, just, we've had crazy scheduling issues, so we haven't been able to complete the interview. Uh, I'm thinking about maybe just putting it up as part one, but I would like to get it completed so it's a full uh, full conversation. Uh, so hopefully that'll be up next week. The week following that will be our spotlight on Wonder Woman. Um, and then the week after that will be our conversation with Chip Sadarsky. The week after that is our conversation with Brian Wood. Uh, so a lot of great stuff coming down the pike. Anyways, thank you for listening to the last four and a half minutes of me uh, preambling and rambling on. And without further ado, I introduce Arlen Schumer. How can you not? No, that's true. Well, my so my I guess the the kind of threshold moment for me was uh, my dad at Christmas time had given me a couple comics and uh, I didn't I didn't really think much about them. I liked them, but it wasn't like but anything. How deeper. did your dad come to like comics enough to buy them for you? Uh, I think he, it was just kind of on a lark. He, he's, he's a funny guy. He's, he's like, you know, I read some comics, but I never really had much of an interest. And then he gave, I remember years later, he gave me some old comics to look through. And one of them was from like 1972. I'm like, dad, this, you were 22 years old. What are you talking about? You stopped reading them after you were a kid. I'm going to call BS on this, but, um, so I guess he kind of figured I'll, I'll give him some comics just for some, you know, reading. These look cool. So he gave me a, an Adventures of Superman comic. And then it's such a weird I, I had it, I guess, at school, and this other kid had this Spider-Man. And what year is this? What year is this? This is uh, this is nineteen ninety-three, so I would have been about nine years old. Um, uh, I was at school. This other kid has uh, Spider-Man thirty-five. I still remember. It's uh, Maximum Carnage Part Four, and I was blown away by the art, blown away by the story, uh-huh. and so we kind of haggled that he wanted my wait, comic. Wait, wait. Who did the art? Uh, the the illustrator was Tom Lyle. Gotcha. And, and uh, it was after McFarland, they had already started uh, Image and Spawn in '92. So yeah, that stuff had already kind of happened. Up. I mean, I that was, was your, so that was your entry point. That was my entry point, and, and I, I got that comic from a trade. I basically, my dad was working as um, he was a, a printer at the time. He worked at a, like, doing copies and stuff. So he actually copied this comic for me. So somewhere I have this old photocopy of this comic so I could still read it, but I traded the way the actual comic to this guy and got Spider-Man 35, and then that summer, I would go to you know my local grocery store trying to buy the other issues to kind of fill in the storyline. I only had maybe like, it was a 14-part storyline, which is, as a kid, very daunting, and I had maybe only four or five chapters, but it didn't matter. I loved it, and that summer I was buying those issues. I also bought some reprints of Spider-Man, and again, it was still intermittent for the following years after that. It wasn't until, I think, 95, so I guess two years later, that I really started getting in on a regular basis and reading a lot of X-Men books, and that was kind of it, it from there. And then what? And then what? Uh, it kept expanding. I kept trying to buy more. I mean, I, I wasn't making a lot of money, as you can imagine, as a 13-year-old, but I bought everything I could. And then when I was in university, to go forward a little, I was continuing to buy as many books as I could. And then when I was in university, uh, I really kind of... What did you end up majoring in at college? Uh, at, at university, I was majoring in uh, history with a minor in ancient history and English, because at the time, I was intending on being a, an English teacher at least, and a history teacher. Uh, didn't end so up. What, ha- what happened since? Uh, since that, I, I work at a bank as a financial planner, and uh, I don't even know really how I ended up in banking, but it was the best decision I ever made. Well, isn't that a beautiful story? 
But to go back for one second to where the podcast came from, um, in about 2004, I well, started... Well, hold on a second. All through growing up and going through the professions and winding up as a banker, <laughs> you, kept, you kept being into comics. Absolutely. I never got out. My, I think my parents always thought I would, but uh, it never happened. But as a guy that could have majored in English, you have no interest in, you don't write, or you do write, or what? Uh, I used to think I had... What do you, a, what do, you do creative? What do you do creatively? Well, that's a good question. So, Other than the podcast itself, which is creative, mm-hmm. what have you done creatively? So I used to think of myself a bit of a writer, and but I don't think I really had enough of a... I wasn't creative enough, or I wasn't original enough. I had good ideas, and I could definitely turn a phrase. Or but, you didn't want to do the work, the hard work of writing, you know? I don't think that was it, because I, I did... I def- uh, don't underestimate that. Unless you actually wrote and knew what it was like to write, for an extended period of time, then you would know. But if you never did, you don't really know. I definitely had a few, like, un, like I had finished, I would write, you know, screenplays, I would write, you know, really? short stories. Like, I, I, I did write these things. They are completely... Well, that's what I'm asking. That's what I'm asking. They are, they are, they are somewhere uh, in, my, in my house. Um, I just, I liked doing it, <laughs> so but I... How did you start the podcast then? So in 2004, this is before the podcast, but I, I really like talking about comics, and that was kind of a thing. So I started working for a comic book website, uh, which is kind of defunct now, but um, I was working for this website, and I would review comics, write a column on comics, and I just liked talking about comics in anywhere possible. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of people who kind of read them with me or knew them to the same level I did and followed uh-huh. creators and, and knew the continuities like I did. So I found a lot of expression in just re- you know critiquing and reviewing comics because it was just a good way to, to you know keep abreast and talk with other people in the community and it was years later after doing that for six or seven years um the the website kind of disappeared and i kind of took a hiatus from writing about comics but i missed talking about them and then i was like you know what i've listened to other podcasts of people talking about comics i could probably do that i mean i like talking about comics i know i feel people. the same way so how do you actually do it how do you get it done and are you actually making any money on it or is it just a labor of love thing it's a labor of love it's as i yeah. said at the uh, earlier um it was just something i enjoyed doing and again sure. At some point, I decided, you know, maybe I could talk to creators. Maybe some creators would actually do the show, but you'll never know unless you ask. So, of I, so I started asking, you know, a lot of different creators that people I had grown up re- uh, reading their material. But how did you even ask them? I mean, even getting the opportunity to ask them or their email or Facebook or whatever—that's difficult on its own. Uh, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm very unashamed that way. I'm, I'm, I'm like, how, you know, did you, how did you break through to a lot of these people? It, you know what? It's, it's. You just have to ask. Um, like I, I would. How did you go by their website? Facebook, email, Facebook. Yeah, Fa- Facebook was amazing. Like I, you know, I think the first person I interviewed for the show was uh, his name is Nick Batara. He was an illustrator on Manhattan Projects, which was a book by Image. And um, I absolutely loved the book, and I was like, i got to talk to this guy. And um, I was able to get in touch with him via Facebook, and he was very receptive. And we, I've, I think I've interviewed him twice, and it just led to me asking more people and getting in touch with people either on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, and people are actually very receptive. So you know, I've done, in the last two years, I've actually done a lot of these interviews. I've had people on a couple times. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I got to talk, I mean... When I first started reading comics, I was reading a lot of comics by Tom DeFalco, so I got to talk to him on the show, which was a lot of fun. Um, Ron Friends is an amazing illustrator, and I've been able to talk to him a couple times. Uh, it's been like that's 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 where it's really become something that I love to do because I, I get to talk to creators that, as a kid, I never would have thought I'd be able to talk to. 
Um, and it still blows my mind. And I actually joke sometimes that every time I'm about to hit, you know, call on the Skype, I always get a little nervous. It doesn't matter how many interviews I've done. It doesn't matter who it is. I always get butterflies just before I do it every time. And then I just, and then I just kind of ride those butterflies through and it's always a lot of fun to do. Sounds great. So in terms okay, of so how did you find me or how did we hook up? So I had I uh, often I post on this uh, forum called the Marvel Masterworks forum where it's a lot of people talking about typically Marvel collected editions and um, a few of the people there will sometimes you know in, um, suggest people that I should have on the show or that I should look into uh, talking to and uh, one of them. Um, who helped actually, he's interviewed people in the past for a website as well, and he's hooked me up with Doug Mensch and um, uh, Paul Galassi and a few others. So he was like, you know, you should you should talk to Erlen Schumer. He's an amazing comics historian. You should definitely have him on your show. He wow, had, who gave me such a nice uh, plug like that? Uh, well, he goes by the handle of DJ Way. I know his name is David. I don't know his last name, but he's uh, he yeah, was like... It's nice. Listen, uh, I never know what's said about me out there. Believe me, I've had... Uh... You know, I run these three comic book history Facebook groups and, um, you know, typical labors of love. They're like podcasts without the podcast. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But, um, no, but that's nice to get that kind of uh, recommendation. You know, I wrote three or four introductions from the mo those Marvel Masterworks um, back in 07, 08, 09. Like one for Thor, one for Iron Man. And you know the collected Spider-Man omnibus? Yes. The complete Lee Ditko? Yeah. I have an essay in there. Oh, wow. I can send you links to all this stuff, but um, a lot of them are already posted on the comp. I mean, if you check out my website, here, yeah. there's the comp of history sub page, and I think all three introductions are posted on there. Now, the but one I, always, I always wonder, because you know, I'm so busy with my own... Facebook shit, managing those groups, and then my own work. I never think to go on that Masterworks board, but I've always wondered, like, whether my introductions ever got any kind of uh, traction. You know, I wouldn't be surprised because, uh, um, first of all, the Marvel Masterworks, uh, people who buy those programs are a dedicated diehard bunch, um, yeah. and they hold those collections in high esteem, and I would imagine that some people are checking their Marvel Masterworks right now being like, wait a minute, he wrote that? <laughs> Let me ask you something. To make a long story short, this gets into whatever we're going to do our podcast about. Um, you know, I'm very pro Kirby, and I don't know whether these. Uh, I'm very anti Stan Lee. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much research you've done on me or know about my author theory of comics manifesto, but I alienated a lot of Marvelites who tend to lean towards Lee, mm. and that's why I never know what. Um, you know, when I came out, do you know about my author theory of comics? Does that even sound familiar? Yeah, I did some research on it. Okay, did you read the essay? Do you know about it? I do. Okay. That alienated me. Like, Roy Thomas, uh, we had a multi-year relationship. He broke it off over that. Really? Oh, yeah. I got stories. But, you know, it's sort of like, uh, but because I took a stand and stood up for Kirby, and I'm very vocal... Um, about Lee, yet I give Lee his 50% credit. But all these pro-Lee people, they want 100%. So the whole Lee-Kirby thing, which also involves Ditko, I mean, that's a whole podcast in itself right there. Oh, that's a, that's a series of podcasts for years. Well, but that's what I'm saying. In yeah. other words, 
So it's that's why I said I never know if they talk about me on these Marvel sites because some of these Marvel sites tend to be very pro league. I've never gotten the sense that the Marvel Masterworks Forum is is. I think there there's a lot of people there who are more pro Kirby than pro Lee. Well, like I said, because I don't go to it, I'm unfamiliar with it. But you know, um, you know, I'm critical of the very things that I love. I mean, I'm Neil Adams' greatest fan, but I'm also his biggest critic, which alienated a lot of Neil Adams fans. <laughs> so much so that one alienated fan started his own Adam's Facebook group just to spite me. Oh, wow. It's like fucking high school over there on Facebook. Do you know what I mean? It can be. Can be? It is. Well, yes. I mean, at its I, 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 I kind of block out a lot of that noise, and I just look at for positive. Block out? How can you block it out? It bombards you all day long. Uh, it's a special power. Well, it's no special power. You just have to wade through it like you wade through a cesspool to find the diamond watch that you dropped into it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I guess I just really want that watch. Right. Um, so people who may not be completely familiar with your career or your work, uh, what is kind of a, a kind of like you did with me, what's your a brief rundown of your career, your connection to comics, and your credentials as a kind of a, a comics and pop culture historian? Which, on its own, that one question could be its own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try not to drone on. Okay, to make a long story short, I am an illustrator who works on a comic book art style, and I'm a member of the Society of Illustrators, but I was trained as a graphic designer at Rhode Island School of Design, which I went to because Walt Simonson had just come out of there, and when I was 18, like a whole generation, I wanted to be a comic book illustrator, Mm -hmm. but when I got to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, It turns out their graphic design department was more respected, even though the illustration department was equally great. The great children's book illustrator, Chris Van Allsburg, taught there. Um, I majored in graphic design, influenced by the great Jim Steranko, who was like a comic book artist, but also had this great sense of design and type, Mm -hmm. which he was paying homage to Will Eisner. So you want to hear a funny little tangent and... The year is 1979. I'm a junior, majoring in graphic design, Royal Ensemble Design, and I must have written Steranko a fanboy letter telling him whatever. I, you know, I, I'm only here majoring in graphic design because of your influence, blah, 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 blah. Wow. Anyway, he writes me back, and he invites me down to Reading, Pennsylvania wow. to meet with him. So I get on a bus from Providence, and I'm going to meet one of the gods of, you know, when I was growing up in the late 60s, Neil Adams and Jim Steranko were the twin gods of comic book art. And in many ways, they kind of still are. But to think that I was going to see Steranko because he invited me, um, you know, can you imagine? And all I can remember from the day I spent with Steranko, Adam, is not much. Why? Because I was having an Doctor Strange out-of-body ectoplasmic experience, I think, the whole time I was there. I remember talking to Steranko, but I really don't remember much. But I remember spending the day. Mm-hmm. And here's what I do remember. The bus ride home, he wanted me to leave RISD and start working for him as his apprentice in Reading. Wow. So, Adam, I had the bus ride back to Providence like the bus ride at the end of the movie The Graduate. I felt like my, my whole life was in front of me. 
And what do I do? Do I go and back to school and finish and get my degree? Or as a junior? Or do I leave college and join the circus, meaning go to work for, be the apprentice or whatever of Jim Steranko? <laughs> so Adam, what do you think I did? I'm hoping you went and with listening, Who's ever listening to this podcast, I pose the question to you. What would you have done if you were in my position? Uh, Adam? I'm a coward. I would have gone back to school. Why is that cowardly? It's not cowardly. It's just... There's, you said coward. I did. Well, not that it's coward. Okay, I take back the word cowardly. I think there's people who have drive and passion and they're willing to follow that and be fearless. And there's those who are a little bit more cautious in life. And I'm a little bit more cautious. Do you think staying in school was the more cautious thing? Uh, Yeah. Well, I stayed in school. Okay. You did the co- Number one, listen, my mother was a widow. She raised my brother and I herself. She mm-hmm. was paying for for RISD, I got a partial scholarship, but basically she took out loans, she paid them back, and I couldn't leave RISD. Mm-hmm. As great as it was to have gone to work for Jim Steranko when I was 21 years old, I decided to get, you know, if I was maybe a freshman, it might have been a different story. Mm-hmm. But already I was a junior, I was too invested. But here's the sort of interesting PS to the story. I end up graduating from RISD, and three years later, after tooling around New York City in a handful of jobs, I worked on the David Letterman show doing TV graphics the first year he was on NBC. Wow. But I ended up at Neil Adams Continuity Associates in the fall of 83, and I got to work for him for two years. My other childhood idol. <laughs> so, Adam, it's I'm still friends with Starank. I still see him at conventions. The thing is, is I'm very lucky that there's not many people from my generation that can say, I almost worked for Jim Steranko, and I did work for Neil Adams. Wow. Which, if, if somebody went back in a time machine to when I was, let's say, 12 years old in 1970 when Neil was at his early peak, if somebody had said to me in 1970, Adam, Arlen, like the ghost of Christmas future, <laughs> Arlen, one day... You will be working for Neil. Like, 1970 was the year Adams did that first Man Bat story. Oh, yeah. Where Batman is fighting in the dark, and Neil Adams draws these completely black, silhouetted bad guys that nobody had ever attempted before because nobody had such a command of anatomy like Adams did to make you see. Do you know the story I'm talking about? I do. Okay. Imagine if. Some- Imagine if the ghost of Christmas future had tapped me on the shoulder while my eyes were bugging out like a Tex Avery cartoon. <laughs> do, do you know that image? Absolutely. While, while I'm looking at this Neil Adams comic, imagine if somebody had tapped me on the shoulder from the future and said, Arlen, 13 years from now, you're going to work for Neil Adams and pencil for him. Wow. Do you know, I think I would have had an adolescent heart attack right there (laughs) and literally dropped dead from the shot. Think about that. I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) But anyway, that's why I'm blessed and fortunate that I can say those things, you know. And if you look at my work, you know, listen, I still get 
my mind still gets slightly blown anytime anybody's ever looked at my illustration and said, you know, Arlen, you remind me a lot of Neil Adams or your work looks a little like Neil Adams. Do you realize, again, if you had told me when I was 12 years old, <laughs> when I was doing fountain pen drawings of Batman that I've kept that I could email you to show you, if somebody had told me when I was 12 years old and drawing my own origin of Batman based on Neil's, if somebody had said, Arlen, 13 years from now, you're going to be penciling for Neil Adams. Do you realize what that would have done to my mind? Blown it again. Yeah, I I would have been incapacitated. I would have been, you know, I would have been a babbling idiot. (laughs) You know, know, like in the Bible, when these people, when they meet God, you know, you're not allowed to look at God's face. Like they're left as these babbling, you know, you can't even talk. That's what would have happened. So my point is, Adam, today, every now and then, you know, over the years, I've heard, oh, your work looks a little like Neil Adams or Arlen. I thought that piece I saw, I always thought it was Neil Adams. Do you realize I still think to myself, like, if my art is being spoken in the same sentence as Neil Adams, like, that's mind-blowing for me. Still. Uh, I Obviously, I want to kind of trace your path, but I do want to s- spend a little bit of time with your time at Continuity. Um, what was it like working there at that time? So in the early 80s, this uh, when Neo was doing mostly advertising art storyboards, uh, animatics, which are like crudely animated storyboards, a lot of advertising comps, which are like all the photographs you see in magazines, which are few and far between now because print is gone. But basically, everything you see photographed had to be sketched out and sold to the client by the eight, by the advertising agency. And people like Neo and Continuity at the time was the leading advertising art house in New York City. Neo really wasn't, he was just starting to do Ms. Mystic and those early versions of Continuity Comics, Megalith, and all that stuff. Um, but uh, mostly it was advertising art. And he was using a Pentel, not a pen and ink thing, because when you're drawing storyboards, you got to knock out 24 frames overnight. You know what I mean? So the art had to look good, but be done quickly. Hmm. And pen and ink was not that. So it was ironic. Neil Adams is a master, one of the masters of pen and ink, just on one level. And... Here, I've never learned how to properly use pen and ink. But here, I finally get to work for one of the gods of pen and ink. And yet, the whole time I was there, he only ever used magic markers. Which, of course, you manipulate them to make people think it looks like pen and ink. Or brush. People have looked at my finished art and said, Arlen, I like your brush work. I'm going, nope. I drew that with a, like, I didn't use a brush or NBA, nothing. So there's a trick to it, but my point is, even the time I spent with Neil, I never got to learn pen and ink brush inking when I could have, because Neil wasn't doing it. Now, I learned a hell of a lot of other things. The two years I worked for him, my own art improved 400%. And to this day, the lessons I learned about professionalism, meeting deadlines, how to work with clients... 
all of that stuff, even though I had some real world experience before I got to continuity, you know, Neil was like going to graduate school, except I was getting paid for it because I was earning money. At the time, in the early 80s, I was making $1,000 cash a week, which, believe me, uh, was pretty good for an artist that still is living in Manhattan. I'm living in a six-floor tenement walk-up at the time, you know, but my point is, you know, Neil's continuity, which if you know the history of continuity, was truly, and still is, but I don't think he hires so many people nowadays because of the advertising slowdown. He mostly does comic art these days, ironically. But um, he really was, for many years, an oasis for freelancers to do commercial art and actually make pretty good money. It was sweatshop hours, seven days a week, 12-hour days. I rarely ever came out and saw daylight. <laughs> I'll never forget one time I left at 5 o'clock and it was like, I felt like a zombie, you know, a vampire when he's out in the daytime. Like, like it was still light out at 5.30. And I'm like, what is this strange, you know, radiation in the sky? You know? <laughs> but, um, no, but working for, and listen, he was my childhood idol, like a whole generation. The first, I would say, you know, couple weeks, I felt that tingling sensation standing next to him because I'm like, I'm second, you know, it was that out of body experience again. I'm not only with Neil Adams, I'm working with him. I'm working for him. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, but of course that wears off after time, and then Neil just becomes the boss. But I went through a kind of a, um, a sort of relationship with him, very much like a father-son, because Neil is exactly 17 years older than me. Old enough to be my father, but truly one of my father figures since my father died when I was four months old. So not ever having a father, and I think I sought out my father figures in the American pop culture, starting with superheroes, Superman, Batman, Rod Serling, Twilight Zone. He was a father figure. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then eventually Neil Adams and Steranko and Bruce Springsteen. And I got a pantheon of my surrogate father figures. And Neil is definitely one of them because he was a real-world one that I actually worked with like a son might work with a father. But like all father-son relationships, according to every mythological thing, you know, you go through the parting at adolescence, you know, and the son has to go off and be a success, and he can only return to the father when he stood on his own two feet. You know that whole drama I'm talking about? Absolutely. So I kind of did that with Neil. We had a kind of a parting of the ways after I felt like, you know, when you're done working for your childhood idol, who can you work for? I knew I would be ready to be on my own as Arlen Schumer, whatever that was going to be, once I left Neil. And I always knew I wanted to be on my own. I never saw Neil as a multi-year. But back then, you know, you're young. You think you got your whole life out of you, and you do. But I just knew I would be ready to be on, and that's exactly what happened. Hmm. You know, left continuity to, to stand on my own two feet and be, you know, self-producing, which I did. And yet I still returned to Neil, just like a son returns to the father. And you look at all the projects I've done, many of which are posted, you know, on the comp of history part of my website. Yeah. But I've done enough projects about Neil up to the present year. 
you know, one of my visual lectures for this year to commemorate 2017 is the 50th anniversary of Neil Adams entering the comic book field. Now, who else is honoring that anniversary but me? <laughs> His greatest fan. I am treating him like a son would treat his great father. And I'm like the son who would never say my name is greater than Neil, but I've done enough projects based on Neil's work that have become my own work. You follow me? Yeah, absolutely. My chapter on Neil in my book, The Silver Age Pompadour, is the best chapter on Neil's work you're ever going to read and look at. My sketchbook, the Neil Adams sketchbook, it's the greatest sketchbook about any artist ever done. Now, how can I say something so hyperbolic with a somewhat straight face, but my tongue <laughs> is planted firmly in the back of my cheek? It is the greatest sketchbook. Show me a greater sketchbook. I dare you. And why is it the greatest sketchbook? Because you got it, have you read it? Have you seen it? I, I don't know if I've actually seen it myself. You gotta get a, if you like Neil Adams or you like art and you like sketchbooks. It's a primer on the art of sketching itself by Neil Adams. I'm just a man behind the curtain, like in The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's Neil Adams' words, but I edit every single one of them. But yet it's Neil talking to you, the reader, about the art of sketching itself. Wow. The graphic design in me is showing you all these mind-blowing thumbnail sketches. But the voice you're hearing is Neil Adams. That's the style of all of my projects, really. My Twilight Zone work, mm-hmm. my I've done work on Bruce Springsteen's career, and my comp of history stuff, is to let the art talk for itself. Let the artist talk about the art. I just manipulate things as a graphic designer, also as a writer and an editor. There's plenty of my writing, too, but I mostly try to let the art and the artists speak for themselves. It's a, a, a good way of presenting it, for sure. Are you familiar with my book, The Silver Age of Art? I am, and actually, I, before you mention it, I do I did want to mention that I was, uh, so I'm, I'm on your, your website right now, and I actually, I do remember your, uh, your essay at the beginning of The Amazing Spider-Man Omnibus, because I do own that. And the minute, nice. I, the minute I saw the title of your essay, I'm like, yep, I've read that. <laughs> nice. And did you like it? I did. Well, I mean, I, I, that was the, I think the, the, one of the first omnibuses I ever purchased from Marvel of classic material. And, uh, yep. and oh, I, de- I, I devoured every page of it. I mean, it was amazing stuff. Well, let me ask something. As a guy that came into comics because of Spider-Man, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you did your homework and you went back one way or the other did you go back and read the early did go Spider-Man? Absolutely. I think I've read okay. all of, like, every issue of Amazing Spider-Man that's been published. So, I've But my done. point is, way long before you got the omnibus. Or did you read them via the omnibus? Uh, no, I think I'd read them, most of the stories before in different formats I could get my, ha- my hands on. But because I, the bottom line is, when it comes to Spider-Man, it did go, not to get off on this tangent, but... You know, there are some of us left who only consider that there are 39 issues and two annuals of a character named Spider-Man. Absolutely. Do you realize that? I do. We're probably a small minority like the Jedi Knights. (laughs) 
You know what I mean? But my point is, I respect other versions of Spider-Man, like the Romita version, for instance. That's usually the number one, you know, oh, but I grew up on the Romita Spider-Man, and that's my Spider-Man, and it was great, and I like Peter Parker as a good-looking guy, and oh, Romita Drew, Gwen Stacy, uh, <laughs> make mine Ditko, please. Listen, Ditko is the Sean Connery of Spider-Man. Do Absolutely. I need to say more? No. There, are, there have been other Bonds. You can have your Daniel Craig. You can have your Roger Moore. Good luck. My point is, for many of us, there's only one James Bond. Mm-hmm. I don't recognize any other actor in the role. Those characters should be other secret agents. None of them are James Bond because there's only one James Bond, and that's Sean Connery. I'm sorry. And then I get picky. I'm only talking about the first four films. Just like the four books of the gospel, there's only four real Bond films. And it's the first four. Even You Only Live Twice is half good and half bad. Mm. Diamonds Forever is pretty much all bad. Yeah, that's not great. And that's the Connery stuff. Yeah. Don't even get me started on everything else. <laughs> but my point is, that's how I feel about the Ditko Spider-Man. I'm sorry. All I have in my collection are 39 issues and two angles. So sue me. Not that, that everyone's you know everyone's allowed there. Well, it, thank it, you for that permission. By the way, my chapter on Ditko, yeah, in my Silver Age book, is also the greatest chapter on Ditko's work you're ever going to read. And by the way, most of the words are Ditko's own words. Did you ever have get a chance? Read, have you read my Silver Age book? Have you read my Ditko chapter? I'm testing you, I, Adam. Uh, I'm I, getting the feeling. I feel like a school teacher. I don't think you you're trying to do the book report. I don't think you, I don't think you read the book. This particular, I have not read the Silver Age of comic book art. No. Well, how can you interview me and not read my greatest book about comic book art ever? That is a great question. Yeah, and a very unsatisfying answer. Well, that's that's fair. You think? Yeah, of course. I mean, okay. you, that being said, you, you've produced a lot of material. I've been trying to go through it. It's not like my book. You say you have my book, but you haven't read it? No, I, I don't have your book. But didn't you say just before that you had it? No, I don't think I'd said that I actually owned it. Yeah, let's rewind the tape. <laughs> let's go back. Okay, my point is, it's not like my book is an 800-page tome like the Oxford English Dictionary. It's the greatest coffee table art book about comic history ever. There's no other book like my book. And when you actually get it in your hands, yep. I mean, have you seen spreads online? I have seen have spreads you, online, yes. Okay, have you, like, seen what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. Anywho, my chapter on Ditko is the greatest chapter about Ditko, Period. And I'm saying that only because I have every book about comic history. You know, there's not that many. No. But I got them all. I've read them all. They're all mostly text-heavy with miniature art reproductions. I'm an artist who became an artist and an illustrator because of comics, like a whole generation did. People like Goodelson Kevich. Mm. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But my point is, is that, you know, there's never been... A history book about the art. Well, I guess not. Especially about the Silver Age. 
You know how many books there are about the golden age, which I could care less about pretty much? I grew up in the silver age. Where is the great history book about... Sarango's history of comics are the greatest, but they're about the golden age. Gerard Jones, great book called Men of Tomorrow, all about the golden age. Hmm. The golden age of the gold... Enough with that for Schlugener golden age. <laughs> Where is the book on the great silver age that is the father of today's American popular culture? Whose artists are our Renaissance masters, Adam? The way we look back on the great Renaissance masters of 500 years ago, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Raphael, the great masters of the human figure. I believe 500 years from now, art historians are going to look back at our Michelangelo's like Jack Kirby, our Da Vinci's, our Raphael's like Neil Adams and Steranko. And maybe they'll dust off the atomic rubble and they'll find my book. <laughs> and they'll go, this guy had it going on. He knew what we're talking about 500 years later. Joe Kubert died in 2012. You know that? Yes. Do you realize never before in the history of Earth has any man made brush marks or pen marks like the great legendary Joe Huber? You realize now that he's dead, and this has nothing to do with his sons carrying on the Hubert name. They're mm-hmm. great in their own way, but nobody will ever make brush marks and pen marks like Joe Huber. We who live during Joe Hubert's time will be lucky to tell future generations that we experienced the great Joe Kubert's artwork. You follow me? Absolutely. This is what I've taken on as my one of my career raison d'etres is to keep the art of guys like Joe Kubert alive through my lectures, through my books, through whatever the Facebook comics history sites that I run. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea that guys like Infantino and Hubert and Gil Kane, Gene Colan, Ditko, Kirby, Steranko, Adams, those are all the artists mainly in my book. Mm-hmm. Along with, of course, Busima, Swan, Murphy Anderson, Wally Wood. You know, there's a select list. Oh, for sure. Of the, what I call the Silver Age greats. There should be a Kennedy Center honors for them. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I just, I, I, just honored, honored Led Zeppelin. What the f? <laughs> no offense to Led Zeppelin, but where is the Kennedy Center honors for Jack Kirby? Mm-hmm. Well, I digress. But my point is, is that that's how, and I do a lecture on this called Art and Comic Book Art, which is all about the relationship of fine art and comic book art, and I show Michelangelo's. Um, Pieta, and then I show Kirby's Thor cover with Odin holding Thor in a Pieta position. <laughs> now, my position, Adam, is I take what I call the alien perspective. If aliens beamed down and they saw a picture of Michelangelo's Pieta and they saw a picture of Jack Kirby's and they weren't burdened by 500 years of art history telling them that one was great and the other sucked, 
think they would look at it and go, oh, two interesting visualizations of an earth parent mourning their dead child. They wouldn't say right off the bat, oh, the Michelangelo, oh, <laughs> how could you, oh, Jack, oh, comic books, eh. I don't think aliens would do that. No. That is my, that is my perspective in what I do. In terms of daring to put up Marcel Duchamp's new descending staircase right next to a Carmen Infantino flash image showing motion on a two-dimensional picture plane. No different than we were told in art school that Duchamp's new descending staircase, oh, that's the greatest 20th century visualization of motion on a two-dimensional, blah, 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 blah. You know, the, the fine art spiel. Mm -hmm. I went to art school when they looked down on comics. You know, every art school teaches comics now. Yeah. Ever read Daniel Plow's Art School Confidential? You know Daniel Klaus? Yep. Okay. He did this great mini graphic novel. It was, a, it was a series of stories, I think. And I think they made a movie out of it. But it, get the actual compilation called Art School Confidential. Because we're about the same age. He went to art school also in the late 70s. And uh, that's when comics were looked down upon. You know? Mm-hmm. And again, we were saying Norman Rockwell is a great artist. Frank Rosetta is a great artist. And now, you know, Norman Rockwell was in the Guggenheim. He's considered now the great American artist. So you see, the geeks have inherited the earth. <laughs> Absolutely. Why, I, is it my, why is it my phone ringing then? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, well, you rang. This is true. Well, I, so I want to ask a question. So obviously, as you mentioned, you know, you talked about some of the, the masters of the Silver Age. By the way, are you liking the shit that I'm rattling off all the top of my head? Uh, yes. <laughs> With perfect sound bites for you and your podcast. They are perfect. Do you, I, think, I'm, do you think I'm reading off a teleprompter? <laughs> no, I don't think you're reading off a teleprompter. You can't see me, but, oh yeah, this has all been prepared material. Didn't <laughs> it come across as if I was off the top of my head? Uh, you come across as someone who is used to lecturing on material and knows how to present himself quite well on the fly. Well, thank you for that somewhat sideways compliment. <laughs> Not sideways at all. I, I want to. In my opinion, in my opinion, I'm the one being complimented, right? I guess that's true. Um, I'm busting your, I'm busting your balls. <laughs> Why? Because I'm from New Jersey, fair. which means you can try busting my balls, but good luck. My balls are dipped in brass, and I'm from New Jersey. Ergo, <laughs> I will relentlessly bust your balls. But it's a form of respect. Okay. I, I want to talk about Carmen Infantino for a second. Yes. Why do you think that more people don't talk about Infantino? Like we, as you said, like we, people do talk about more Neil Adams. people don't talk about any, who do they talk about? Um, well, I, I feel like, I mean, people do talk about. We're not about, talking about Joe Cuber. No, and that's. We're not talking about Kurt Swan. They're not talking about Nick Cardi. See that I gotta admit that. So it's interesting because, like, I'm obviously of a much younger generation, but I love Kurt Swan. I, I anytime I'm able to read anything by Kurt Swan. But that's because when you become a lover of any genre, you naturally discover its history. Hmm. You know, when Keith Richards plays a note. I guarantee you, he knows the source of that chord. 
dating back to, you know, one of those black blues men like Muddy Waters or whatever. Mm-hmm. Great artists learn their history. Martin Scorsese knows the history of movies. Steven Spielberg knows the history of movies. Bruce Springsteen knows the history of rock and roll. Jim Steranko, Neil Adams, these guys know their history of comics. I don't know how you can fall in love with anything. If you're a writer, how do you not know the classics? Hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So somewhere in your development, you learned about Kurt Swan. You learned about Steve Ditko. You did your research. You went back and learned. I guess I see a lot of people who are modern fans who haven't gone back and learned it. It kind of drives me nuts. But isn't that true for anything? Do you think the average, pick any kind of pop music person, do you think the average fan of what's considered pop music knows even the history of pop music? No, probably not. We live in obviously an instant gratification society where everything is literally at your fingertips. I know I'm going to sound like an old fogey where, you know, I used to live in a log cabin, Adam, and we had to walk to school, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. But when we had to research information, we had to go to the library and take a book out and photocopy the page of information. Back in the day, you had to search through rusty old bookstores in Greenwich Village (coughs) to find all this secret beatnik history of America. You see what I'm saying? Nowadays... Every single thing I just mentioned is available at the click of your fucking finger. You have to edit that out? No, no, not at all. (laughs) But you see what I'm saying? The the bitter irony, the Kafkaesque, what's the word I'm looking for? The Kafkaesque absurdity of it Mm -hmm. is that this generation has all the information about Infantino, Hubert, everything at your fingertips literally but they don't access it they don't go to it mm-hmm. so you can lead a horde of culture but you can't make her think you like the way I mangled that one? I did <laughs> you know you bring up a good point and I think a, I mean I remember like as a kid when I first got into comics what was so entrancing to me was um, was the history was the continuity it was something I wanted it's a fascinating to... history it's got all the triumph and tragedies of ABC's Wild World of Sports. <laughs> the, 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 the ag- what was it? The something of victory and the agony of defeat. Every story, the Ditko story is triumph and tragedy. The Lee Kirby story is triumph and tragedy. I was just in this Bill Finger Batman documentary. Triumph and tragedy. Yeah, I was, it's got I was the really history ex- of all, baby. Yeah, I was really excited to to watch that documentary, and then I can't because I'm in Canada. <laughs> I don't know how Hulu works and why that should be. It makes zero sense. Mm-hmm. But even through the black market, isn't there an underground internet market where even in Canada you can pretty much <laughs> find it if you search for it? It's new enough that it, uh, no one has it available yet. Are you serious? Come I'm, on. I I am serious because I was Adam, I was very Adam, interested to read to watch Adam, it. Adam, yeah, what's your best? Put your best people on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I will make sure to get my team on I it. I can't believe in this age of cyber whatever, 
that somebody in Canada can't find Batman and Bill. Are you kidding me? I wish I was. Adam. I'll make it happen. Uh, make, make it so, as Bart would say. Make it so. <laughs> uh, and then we, we need a whole other podcast after you've read my book and watched my documentary. Absolutely. Your book is hard to find on in, in Canada, but that's no excuse. I will get my hands on it. Hard to find? You can go right to my website and buy it, sign it, sketch it from me. Well, okay, well now I have no excuse, do I? You have no excuse about a lot of things, you know. <laughs> I've been taking notes about your demerits, so I'm going to give you a full report after this podcast. You're on notice, young man. Man, I, uh, it's, it's, I'm, it sounds like I'm in a lot of trouble. Listen, you're the younger brother I always wanted and never got. How's that? <laughs> I'll take it. Now, it. I should mention, so this goes up on Friday, uh, May 19th, So you, you're, but you're doing something pretty big on Saturday, May 20th. How perfect, yeah. I'm lecturing on the Silver Age of Pop Art, basically based on my book and based on the era, and I show how, through the work of those eight artists I mentioned, and a few others, I show how Pop Art in the 1960s reflected what was happening in a decade. In terms of the movements of the 60s, assassination, civil rights, poverty, everything, racism, everything that the 60s are about, the Vietnam War, and how the art itself reflected those changes. So in the early 60s, you get that futuristic idealism of Infantino. You mentioned Infantino. Mm -hmm. And then, by the end of the 60s, you get the gritty realism of Neil Adams, which was very reflective of the gritty realism that was the late 60s, after the assassinations and the Vietnam War protests, Kent State, etc., etc. So, that's been my kind of thesis my whole career it started out when I was at RISD, and I ended up getting a book published about it. The original edition of the Silver Age was 03, but it went out of print in 05 because the publisher uh, went out of business. They were mom and pop. And it's taken me uh, to 2014, with the growth of self-publishing, I was able to bring it back out with the aid of a division of Simon & Schuster for self-publishing called Archway. And they did a beautiful, it really is a new, improved version. There's a lot of graphic surprises, and for those of you into typography, which is a kind of an invisible art form, but it's a major part of comics Absolutely. and books. Uh, the typography, I was never happy with in the original edition, because I had to use freelancers to make the publisher's insane deadline, but I made the deadline, but I was maybe happy with 50% of the type, so I did get to revise and make the type perfect. And it is better printed. It's on beautiful paper, better stock, some graphic surprises. So anybody out there that has my original book, especially if they have the soft cover, the hard cover has a whole 18-page, 16-page uh, chapter that is not in the soft cover. So right away, the revised hard cover, if you've only had the soft cover, you need the hard cover anyway. Hmm. So I tell people that have my original edition Give it away to a library, give it to a friend, gift it. But man, if you love my original book or if you don't even know about it, I will double your money back if, not, if you don't think, really, that my book is the greatest book about comics you've ever held in your hands. And I'm only saying that as deadpan as I could deliver that Barnum and Bailey line, knowing that people listening are going, who does this guy think he is? <laughs> well, I'll tell you who I think I am. 
I've got three blurbs on the book jacket from a couple of nobodies named Will Eisner and Alan Moore. Oh, wow. So, gee, I only got the father of the graphic novel and the greatest living comic writer to tell you, the potential buyer, why you should have my book. Oh, and by the way, did I mention I have a testimonial from a guy named Steve Ditko? I did not. I'll, I'll email that to you, too. Wow. You know, this is really the pre-interview, you realize. <laughs> what, what we've been doing, because you need to come back after you've read my book, seen a couple of my videos. You're right. Read some of my art. I mean, Adam, you haven't done your homework on me. I, I, I got, Apparently, I didn't do enough of a deep dive. I'm not, deep dive? What did you dive into? I what do you know about? What do you know about me? How did I even get on your podcast? <laughs> uh, you can thank you can thank uh, a guy posting under the name DJ Way. Okay. <laughs> um, he he actually did have a few questions he wanted to ask, which was uh, first one being if you had to recommend one series of run of comics without which no self respecting comics fan should be without, which would it be? Just one out of all those artists. Like each artist has his definitive work. Oh, I know. That it's a tough question. So in a way, it's hard to only give one. But for each artist, like for instance, you're a Walt Simonson fan. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the series that he made his bones on, which is Manhunter, which has been collected in a beautiful IDW artist edition, mm-hmm. then guess what? You're not a Walt Simonson fan. If you're a Neil Adams fan. And you don't have Thrill Kill Artifact Edition that IDW also put out, so it looks like the original art. And it's only Neil's greatest non-superhero story, mm-hmm. one of the greatest stories of all time, the epitome of his realistic, photorealistic drawing style. So if you don't have that, if you don't have what made his bones, which is Dead Man, anybody who calls themselves a Neil Adams fan and doesn't know what made his bones, which was his Manhunter, which was Dead Man, mm-hmm. or should I say Manhunter, was Simonson's Dead Man, because it came five years later. Yeah. But yes, each artist, I would say, has their, I would call to fit, like you're a Ditko fan. Yeah. Again, if the aliens come to Earth and they've got room on their spaceship for one work of Ditko's, what are you going to give them? I give them Doctor Strange. Over... The Spider-Man omnibus? I think I would. Okay, well, that's a controversial choice. Either way, <laughs> I'm giving him one or the other. Because Spider, uh, Doctor Strange is more his own soul creation, I understand you leaning that. But in terms of, remember, you're giving this to aliens. Mm-hmm. I think you get more of the human condition out of Spider-Man than you do at Doctor Strange. Oh, that's absolutely true. But, yeah, no, you're right there. If, 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 okay. yeah, you, my point is, so, take Joe Kubert. What is Kubert's definitive work? Many would say it's Sergeant Rock. Many would say it's his Tarzan. Many would say it's his Hawkman. You know, I did a lecture called The Five uh, Stars of Joe, something like, I think it was called The Five Stars of Joe Kubert or something. Joe Kubert's Five All-Stars, you know, based on one of his Far Army of War, Sergeant Rock annual covers. I did a sort of takeoff on that. Mm-hmm. But he's got like five definitive characters. But again, getting back to the IDWR editions, they put out an Enemy Ace edition that might be his single greatest body of artwork. 
the Joe Kubert enemy ace from 1968 to 70 might be his career peak just in terms of the beauty of the art. Hmm. Which in a legendary career like Hubert, yeah, how do you begin? But it's like choosing, like I said, it's like Hubert has five children. Yeah. You can't really, but if I had to only choose one in some comic art Sophie's Choice, I'm going to go with the Enemy Ace Artist Edition. But again, I came into Hubert with his Tarzan. I was never a war comic fan. So Tarzan, who was the model for the first superhero, for all superheroes, really. Yeah. Um, that's when I first got into Cuber. And I think the Tarzan um, IDW Artist Edition, you know, again, I'm weighing that in the Enemy Ace Edition. They're both, again, alien-worthy. So each of those artists, Infantino, what is his greatest body of art? I think Adam Strange, Inked by Murphy Anderson, those, that's the only body of interior stories that Anderson inked. They did so many great covers together. Yeah. But interior stories, they only they never did a Batman interior story. Only for an advertising comic, believe it or not, for Hostess. <laughs> they only ever did covers. So I would say the body of art in Adam Strange, that's that definitive. So like I said, each of the great artists has a definitive work, I think. You know, that if you only could give one. Mm-hmm. But that's what artists, historians spend. This is what criticism and art, literary historians do this. Everybody's always making lists and grading. One of the greatest movies of all time. One of the greatest. That, so believe me, every art historian, if they said, what is Jasper John's greatest work? They're probably all going to agree on those first three things. But that's what historians and critics do. They come to consensus. Absolutely. Well, not everything is equal. Not just because you like it doesn't make it better than Picasso, even though you might think it's better. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, and there is an art, comic book. See, I always say what I do. I call it comic book art. You rarely ever see me calling it just, oh, I'm into comic books. I've always used the word comic book art because I've always been about the art primarily. Hmm. And the level of art history criticism in comics, you would think such a visual medium is so poor compared to other art forms. There is more discussion of the graphics in movies hmm. than there is in comics. And it's ironic. Do you think is it, it? Well, it is. Do you think part of criticism of comics is about the stories and the characters? Yeah. No, you're, there you are right there. I'm wondering if part of it's that, um, like, I can, I'm not an artist. I don't, like, I don't possess a... Um, yeah, but you lean towards the literary and the writing. Yes. So I, I wonder if the, it's part like of it's... Like most people, by the way. Pardon me? Like most people, if you're not an artist, you're going to be into comics or the stories. Well, to a degree, I think that's true. But I, I think part of it's, it's, it's more not necessarily understanding... Like, I, I think when I started to actually review comics and look at comics deeper, uh, I started to have an appreciation that I didn't have before. And then when I started talking to artists and colorists, etc., and inkers, and starting to understand more of the actual mechanics and the craft uh, within, I started to, again, appreciate it more. And I think maybe it's it's not necessarily ignorance, but it's, you know, people read them, but they don't maybe go deeper. They don't learn, know as much about... Even, even the artists themselves 
unless they were really schooled, don't really barely analyze the art either. Mm. But pretty much fans, most of whom are not artists and are not barely trained in any kind of art analysis, mm. mostly views of comics. And this is what I wrote about in my author theory of comics. I wrote about this because it has a lot to do with why Stan Lee is elevated over Kirby. And why the writer of lyrics is put first before the writer of the music. That's true. Do you know every Elton John song says, written by Bernie Taupin and Elton John? Bernie Taupin wrote all the lyrics. Yeah. Huh. I, I never is, thought about that, but you're right. That is an interesting <laughs> distinction. Right. Every single thing out in the culture is written by, illustrated by. The great writer always comes first. Oh, the writer... The master of words. You know, Adam, in advertising agencies, I was an art director, but I was also a writer. So I, I copywrote, and I was a combination copywriter, art director. Not every art director could write, and not every writer could art direct. Mm -hmm. But because of that, I was able to see firsthand the way writers and artists are treated by the account executives and the clients who are not creative people. Always the copywriter got more respect than the art director. Always. Why? Because they are masters of words. They all have college degrees. Ooh, these artists, they really have no people skills. They just know how to make pretty pictures. They're kind of dumb. But, oh, the writers. You see what I'm getting at? Absolutely. Even in comics, where it's primarily a visual medium, it's the thing that seduces you and sucks you in. The level of visual discourse about actual comic book art is pathetic. And I mean that with a capital P. Mm -hmm. Pathetic. I am only doing my small part to change that. My body of work, the things I've done and the things I continue to do. The three Facebook groups I run are all based around the artwork more than they are about discussing the You can discuss anything, but my point is I stress a level of discourse that tries to focus on the actual art, which has never really been studied. Comic book art criticism is... Look, I just did this author theory of comics based on the author theory of film, which happened how many years ago? almost 70 years ago, mm -hmm. by the French critics, do you realize, and they were the first ones to say, that not the screenplay writer, but the director is the auteur, meaning when you see a movie, you're seeing the director's vision using the writer's words. But the vision you end up seeing is the director's vision. That's what the auteur theory of film is. Well, guess what? That's true in comics, too. And it doesn't matter whether it's a 26-page script by Alan Moore for one panel or whether it's a phone call from Stan Lee to Jack Kirby saying, Hey, Jack, have the FF fight a really big villain next fish. And then what does Kirby come back with the uh, Galactus Silver Surfer trilogy? Hello? Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? It Absolutely. doesn't matter whether you're working full script DC old school style, panel one. Hero walks in the door, you know, panel two. Doesn't matter. You give those same directions to ten different comic artists, 
guess what, Adam? You're going to get 10 different drawings. And no matter how much the writer describes what's in that panel, so that the artist feels like they have to draw every single thing the artist mentions, which is an Alan Moore script, you're still going to get 10 different interpretations of that panel. Mm-hmm. Writers, copywriters still don't get it. We are 70 years behind film criticism. You realize that? 70 years behind. Not 7 years behind. Not 17 years behind. 7-0 Adam. And all I'm doing is being a lone voice in the wilderness like John the Baptist in my loincloth of honeys and eating bees or whatever the hell he did. (laughs) Screaming to anybody that will listen that comic book art is worth discussing the art. Hmm. My lectures, if anybody out there listening has ever seen me, knows that nobody lectures about comics like I do. Because nobody takes the time to put together the visuals behind me like I do. Do you know I've gone to lectures about comics that didn't include any visuals? That just had a bunch of guys sitting at a table talking? Wow. The level of visuals at even the greatest comic conventions like San Diego are pathetic compared to multimedia stuff I see at business conventions and other conventions. Hmm. Comic book visuals, not the art itself, but talking about the art, showing the art, displaying the art in the ways I'm talking about are years behind, decades. And all I'm doing, Adam, with my own work is just chipping away like Tim, what's his name, in Shawshank Redemption. With my little hammer, I've been chipping away at everything I just described, and I've spent my whole career chipping away. Have I left you speechless? Uh, Almost. (laughs) Um, That seems like a a fairly good spot to end, but I want to ask another question anyway. Yes. Um, which is, so we've talked obviously about the, you know, the history of the medium. We're got, we're going to have to do a follow up episode once I've had a chance to read your book in full. Um, uh, that's like, we need a couple of follow up episodes. Uh, we might be doing a partner podcast. I already see that. As we're we're going to be the new Cisco and Ebert. <laughs> I can already see it in my mind. Uh, I guess my question is, so, you know, obviously, you know, as you said, you, you've spent time in your career to, you know, make sure that people know of the classics and know why we should respect these creators and kind of bringing them back into attention and putting focus on them. I guess... By the way, which is a thankless, dirty job, yeah. they're all labels of love. But go on. Um, do, you, do you still, you know, read modern comics? Are modern comics yeah. part of your equation? Yeah, when I could fit the time in. You know what's ironic? There's still a lot of great comics out there. We are in a golden age of comic book art and books, beautiful hardcover. I mean, there are so many great comics and all different kinds of graphic novels out now. You really can spend a small fortune every month. Mm -hmm. What I've been spending my money on, ironically, are all those IDWRS editions. I was going to say. Here's what's funny. Most mainstream Marvel and DC stuff I don't read. It looks a little homogenous to me. The art, even though it's all well done, it all looks a little plastic, a little soulless. For me to read a superhero comic, it's got to be deconstructed, like the kind of stuff Mike Allred does. Hmm. The guys I follow are like the guys that have been around for the last 30 years. 
the usual suspects. Jaime Hernandez and Love and Rockets, Daniel Klaus, Charles Burns, Adrian Tomine, Peter Bad. Hmm. Uh, I, this is just off the top of my head. Yeah. You know what I mean? But in terms of current comics, like I said, I walk into my local comic store, and I mean, there's just so much great stuff. Amy Reader, who does Rocket Girl, is brilliant. Um, I'm just, again, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, like I said, a big Mike Allred fan. I was a big Darwin Cook fan, obviously. Mm-hmm. But he was old school. Mike Allred is a kind he's current, but he's got an old school style because he knows how to draw. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so there's so many good comics. What did I just buy? I just bought the new Love and Rockets. How great is it that Jaime Hernandez is still doing Love and Rockets <laughs> going on how many years now? 35 years. Wow. And still putting it out. He's one of the greatest cartoonists of our time. And anybody out there listening to this, if they don't know who Jaime Hernandez and Love and Rockets is, well, guess what? <laughs> He's one of the greatest cartoonists of our time. Right? Absolutely. So those are the guys off the top of my head that I still make it a point, and, and I'm probably missing. I just bought the new issue of Berlin by Jason Lutz, who's a fellow, fellow RISD alumni. Hmm. Issue 20 came out. It's like the size of a little Digest magazine. He's been doing this for like 20 years, Berlin. All about the story of Berlin between the wars, oh, when wow. Nazism was just starting. Now, this is his life's work. It's the 20th issue. Like I said, I think he's been doing this since the late 90s, at least, early 2000s. So he's been doing this at least 15 years. I just bought that. So these are the guys that I follow. But there's a million, I'm, I'm telling you, you could spend your weekly or monthly salary on any given week buying the great shit that's out there. You know? Mm-hmm. Drawn quarterly, your fellow Canadian publisher. Yeah. Almost, almost everything they publish, almost pretty much everything they publish, is worth buying and reading. Speaking of which, they publish guys who I follow, like um, um, Chester Brown, just oh, yeah. came out with this incredible graphic novel, Mary Dried Jesus's Tears or something. Um, uh, the other guys from Canada, Seth who's been doing Palookaville for 15 years. And Joe Matt, another Canadian, he still does stuff once in a while. These are the guys that I've been following, like I said, pretty much the last 30 years. Hmm. And they're still doing stuff, you know? So, But like I said, I'm sure I'm missing so much. But the mainstream Marvel DC stuff, the mainstream superhero stuff, and again, so I'm spending my money on these $150 IDW things. Mm-hmm. So here's what's ironic. Back in the day when I was a kid, the comics were great. Like all the artists I mentioned, Kirby, Adam, Storanko, all that stuff. Yep. But we would have died back then if there was an IDW artist edition. We would have died for hard covers of the complete Peanuts. Oh, I was yeah. reading those little paperback Peanuts books. <laughs> if somebody had put in my hands one of those fantagraphics, beautiful Designed by Seth, I believe, right? Or somebody beautifully designed. Yeah, I can't remember who designed it. It's, I think it's Seth. The point is, is you know, um, those are gorgeous. We would have died if they existed. So here, what I find ironic, a whole generation later, the mainstream comics are really not that great. And I'm talking about really the Marvel and DC stuff. 
But I'm not a fan. I don't read them, so I really don't really know what I'm talking about, per se. But I'm just saying, I find it ironic that the current mainstream comics are kind of dead. Yet, we live in a golden age of hardcover deluxe archival reprints. Absolutely. I, 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 These I absolute additions. Again, you can go into a well-stocked comic store and spend a small fortune on all of these giant reprints of all the great comics you can imagine and the great comic strips. These Little Nemo editions, Prince Valiant, you name it, it's been reprinted in a deluxe hardcover. Adam? Yeah, no, you're... No, no, you're right. It's amazing the amount of content that they're able to reprint now in these beautiful editions. And as you said, IDW is kind of doing the best versions of a lot of them. Their artifact editions are incredible. They're coming out later this year with a Jack Kirby Fantastic Four Mm -hmm. artist edition, twice up the old size of the original art. And it's some of its prime Kirby Fantastic Four. So seeing those pages, because they already did an FF. But it was the smaller art side. Yeah. Um, my point is, yeah, so my point is, that's what I'm kind of why I'm not really in, invested, pun intended, <laughs> in the Marvel DC currents, because I'd really rather spend my money on these hardcover things. So I try not to kind of waste my money on what they call the pamphlets these days. Yeah. You know, but again... Every now and then, I'll buy something by Mike Allred or the guys that I like. You know, um, yeah, I mean, it's just like I said, we can spend the whole podcast on the current comic situation, obviously, and what's going on. But again, I've taken it upon myself, Adam, to be the curator of the Silver Age, in a way. Mm -hmm. It's to keep those guys alive because they're who made me who I am today, so it's a form of payback. But again, you mentioned at the beginning, why is nobody talking about Carmen Pantino? You know what I immediately thought of when you said that? Howard Chaykin, who I've always admired, great comic artist, right? He said when Carmen Pantino died, the weekend he died, Chaykin was at a comic convention in California. And he went around the whole convention and never heard once, Infantino just died. He never heard once the name Infantino mentioned. Wow. So that's sad. And then you wonder, how many know who Joe Kubert is? How many know who, like I said, rattle him off? So I've taken upon myself to keep the guys that I grew up with, that are in my book, that are the foundation of our current culture, pretty much. Yeah. My job is to keep Kirby alive. You know, I'm lecturing on Jack Kirby in the fall at the very prestigious 92nd Street Y in Manhattan. And they're like a real cultural think tank. So, you know, to be able to talk about Kirby in a venue like that in New York City, that's what I do. I'm trying to get the great conflict artists recognized by the larger culture as the great American artists they are a lot more worthy than lead fucking Zeppelin getting a Kennedy Center on it. And no offense to Led Zeppelin. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I absolutely do. Um, I want to ask a, a question, because you mentioned, obviously, that you, um, the, the love of Kubert and, and others. Um, 
did you, I mean, I guess this is what, like maybe 10 years or so now, did you read um, uh, the Wednesday Comics Experiment that DC had where you had, uh, you know, Joe Kubert? Absolutely, love it. Listen, that, I love, anything Mark Chiarello has ever done, I love the guy, you know, Mark knows me, we met a few times, mm-hmm. um, I love his work, and he's a great designer, he comes from out of the Silver Age, like we're, you know, a couple years apart. So, yeah, the Wednesday Comics thing was beautiful. I wish I could have been selected to be one of those artists. I would have loved. That's my kind of assignment, you know? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, are you kidding? It's a beautiful project. Every Which way but loose. I bought the edition. I bought the separate things when they came out. I bought the hardcover collection, yeah, which me- is gorgeous. I mean, are you kidding me? Oh, it's absolutely I wish, I, gorgeous. To tell you the truth, I wish they let Mark Chiarello do more things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Maybe they didn't sell enough. I don't know, but I don't see enough of Chiro's kind of work like that. I wish he kind of did more, but I guess he's busy. Whatever. I don't know how DC Comics works, but... Yeah, it, it was an amazing experiment. I'm just glad that they had a chance to do it, because some of the art in that book is incredible. But to tell you the truth, I will always rank comic books over comic strips any day. I don't care how big and beautiful they are. There's something about the page-turning experience hmm. about comic book art and comic book stories that that's why I never got into comic strips as a kid. Okay, the heyday of the great illustrated strip is over. I grew up at a time of Peanuts and, you know, the gag of a strip. The, I never got exposed to the great adventure strips. That was a generation before me. Yeah. So I only found about, about Kniff and Raymond and all those guys. But comics themselves never really... With the exception of the gritty 1940s Dick Tracy by Chester Gould, I never really got into comic strips ever. Because no matter how good it was, it was three panels. And then you had to wait. Like, or, okay, a Sunday page. Okay. It was a, to me, a Sunday page was like any one double-page spread in any great comic book I was reading. True. So it's like, to me, comic strips were like looking at coins or stamps. Like, you can only stare at a stamp for so long. And then it's like, hello, can we look at something else, please? Or a coin. How much enjoyment do you get out of a fucking coin? Hey, I, collectors would say they love the, their coins. Okay, but my point is, <laughs> God bless them, at least a comic book gives you a whole story, a page-turning experience that you immerse yourself in. How do you compare that to coins and snaps? You really can't. But my point is, the comic strip compared to the comic book, is so inferior as a satisfying art form. I consider them practically two different art forms, even though obviously they're related. Hmm. But I just think the greatest comic strip, with the exception of, again, the usual suspects, you know, Little Nemo, blah, blah, blah. But again, you know, anything you love about Little Nemo, you can find in any Mobius graphic novel. Trust me. (laughs) It's all there. I would rather read, you know what I mean, a Jeff Darrow graphic novel than any, you know, comic strip collection. But again, with, with, with the asterisk exceptions of whatever usual suspects you want to pull up. Makes sense. Yeah, but like I said, make mine comic books, man. <laughs> they'll, they'll always be better. Any, any last-minute plugs you would like to... Uh, I mean, we, uh, we've been plugging a bunch of your work throughout the, the podcast, but any last-minute plugs before we sign yeah, off? Sure. If, if, you, if everybody goes to my website, arlenschumer.com, make sure they spell my name right. 
Um, you know, SCH, just like Chuck Schumer and Amy Schumer, I am the unknown third Schumer. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm still waiting to be discovered. They got to Chuck, they got to Amy. Yeah, where's Arlen Schumer in the mix? But yeah, so ArlenSchumer.com, it's linked to my YouTube channel. See my videos. It's linked to my Twitter, to my uh, Tumblr page. And on Facebook, friend me and join my three comics history groups on Jack Kirby, Neil Adams, and the Silver Age. Mm -hmm. And then uh, come see me lecture at the White Plains Comic Convention on May 20th, Saturday, in a couple days. Um, again, go to my website or go to my Facebook page or go to whatever it is, WPComicCon.com or something. But uh, it's in White Plains, New York, uh, for the people in the New York area listening in. And uh, if you've never seen me live, I guarantee you, you might be familiar with the source material that I use, but I can guarantee you, you will come out of any one of my visual lectures thinking and looking at comic book art totally differently. All right. And I, 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 as I said, as we kind of mentioned before, we'll definitely have you back in the future. Um, I was looking at your website, and I definitely want to talk to you at some point about, um, I guess, the, uh, the evening you did about the Flintstones. Like I said, I've got kind of like, you know how you can't pick your favorite child? Mm-hmm. It's like, who else is doing a lecture on the Flintstones? Me! That's who awesome. else is doing a lecture on the Twilight Zone? Me! But my point is, when I love something, I go balls out and I get into it, man. No, I like that. So, you know, I'm the greatest Bruce Springsteen fan you've ever met. Why? Go to my website. It's all there. That's why I'm the greatest Bruce Springsteen fan, because of what I've done. I don't just talk out of my ass. See, I can hype it with the best of them. The difference is I back up my bullshit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And therefore, it's not, and therefore it's not bullshit. Mm -hmm. But I make you think I'm bullshitting you. But I'm not. I'm like Superman. I never tell a lie about my work. <laughs> when I tell you the Neil Adams sketchbook is the greatest sketchbook, I'm daring you to find a better one and prove me wrong. When I tell you my book, The Silver Age, of comic art is the greatest book about comic art, I'm basically implying, until you show me a better one, because I've seen them all, mm -hmm. my book is the greatest book about comics history ever. That's all. So that's my challenge to everybody listening to this. That's the Arlen Schumer challenge. The Arlen Schumer challenge, which always comes with a double your money back guarantee. Excellent. Well, Arlen, thank you so much for joining us. And again, we look forward to having you back on in the future, apparently multiple times. Adam, I love you, man. It's been great. Excellent. Thank you so okay. much. You got it. And I'll email you some stuff and let's keep up the conversation, okay? Will do. Are we on Facebook? Are we friends? Are you a member of my groups at all? Uh, I think we're friends on Facebook. Okay. Make sure, make sure you friend me and then I'll enter you into my groups because that's where I, I am all day long. In between my work, I'm all, it's like Facebook is like a virtual cafe right next to my drawing board and computer. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So every time I want to take a break, I pop in for a quick cappuccino. I throw in my two cents to a number of conversations, and then I go back to work for an hour or two hours, and then I do the same thing two hours later. Wow. Or sometimes, usually two minutes later. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I spend far too much time on that fucking Facebook, but whatever. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Whatever. Mm -hmm. So listen, Adam, it was really great. You know, you've been a good sport, and uh, 
you know, I know I busted your balls a little, but hey, it's for your own good. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I'll uh, I'll order your book, and again, we'll we'll talk about it. And then, again, I'm very intrigued to talk to you about Flintstones because I've recently. Uh, yeah, tell me. This past Christmas, uh, I've always had a love for it, but uh, my mother-in-law actually gave me the complete series on DVD, which I was ecstatic about. And which I just went through when I put together my lecture for the Norman Rockwell Museum a month ago. Oh yeah, and so I've been I've been going starting to go through it. My son's three and a half, so he doesn't really get it, but I'm starting right. to watch the those old episodes, and I've seen a lot of them, but there's a lot I haven't seen, and it's, it's fascinating to me because it's. It's it's so interesting and of its time and like there's certain things like I'm I was I never knew about it like uh, watching episodes like in the the first season how they would have kind of like um like a cold open but it's just part of the episode that comes later, which was actually very it was a cheap you know you know everything was done on cheap yeah so it was a cheap teaser that actually worked because it had the feeling of a teaser but all they did was just pull a scene out. It was and the yet, most bizarre thing because I, I didn't know that, that they'd ever done that. So I was watching and I'm like, wait, what? But I, no, other show, no other show really did that. But they were able to do it and make it work. But you're right. Those cold opens are not really cold opens. They're just it, they're just excerpts from the show. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like they're spoiling it. Like, it, yeah, I I don't I can't think of any well, other show. They that's never ever done they that. never cho- they never chose a scene that would give too much away. No, I, I suppose not. But it's still like definitely something that's mid episode. Like something's gone See, on. But and think about different. it. Since they felt their audience was primarily kids, especially as the series went on, you know, just like with a kid, you give them a taste of the ice cream hmm. and you get them coming back for more right away. <laughs> See, adults, I, I, I would think the mindset was, well, with adults, you can give them something intriguing in the beginning that's mysterious. But with kids, give them something that's actually from the show, but it's more like spoon-feeding them something. You know? Mm-hmm. But listen, it was all about saving money. Makes sense. Those cold opens cost them zero. Has, has any of, Did any other show of the period do that? I don't think so. That's my point. But, you know, you would really have to talk to a real historian of that era to know whether the Flintstones and Hanna-Barbera kind of innovated that or whether other live action shows were doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm it's, not sure. It's, but let me ask you something. Yeah. Have you, have you watched my Flintstones lecture on my YouTube channel? I haven't. Okay, Adam. I know. We, okay, now listen to me. You're on my website homepage. I am. Okay. Click on the YouTube uh, icon. You see that? Yep. Now, when you get... Wait, hold on. Okay. Then you get to my YouTube page. Now, you see uploads or whatever. You see under my name, it says home, videos, playlists, channels. Click on videos, and that'll take you to a grid of like... 20 or 30 of my various video things. Okay. And there's even more. It says load more. But if you scan that selection, you will find the Flintstones lecture. Where is it? Uh, Flintstones visual lecture by Arlen Schumer. You see that? It's 48 minutes long. Okay. Now, let me tell you something. When we hang up, you like the Flintstones? You're going to watch my lecture. This is from 1994 when um, the the live-action movie with John Goodman came out. Okay. 
but I tackle so many of the things we're talking about. It's in the lecture. Okay. So here's the thing. I only ever did the Flintstones lecture once back in 94. Okay. Long story short, the Norman Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, recently had a Hanna-Barbera exhibition. They're trying to broaden their museum so that people think it's not just Norman Rockwell, but, you know, 20th century American pop culture, sort of. Okay. The minute I found out that the Norman Rockwell is doing a Hanna-Barbera exhibit, I went, I went to the opening, because I live a couple hours away from Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and I basically said, listen, I only ever did the Flintstones lecture once, 23 years ago, but would you let me do it now for, and they said, sure. So a month ago, I got to revise and redo my Flintstones lecture. They videotaped it. I'm waiting for the new video. Okay. But when you watch the old one, it was back when I was using double slide projectors, pre-computer. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I had to watch my old lecture in order to do the new one. I had to take notes because I was basically revising it. Yeah. So I hadn't watched my Flintstones lecture probably in 23 years. But I'm watching myself talk about the Flintstones, and by the time it's done, I'm like, who is this guy? He's pretty fucking good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm listening to this guy jabber on about the Flintstones, I'm like, you know, this guy's pretty entertaining. Like, you know what I mean? Like, sign that guy up. How much, did you, how much did you actually end up revising? Well, you'll see. Eventually, I hope to get the new Flintstones lecture which now I got to revise, it's on the computer, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but there's still something about the double slide projector setup, it's like projecting double page spreads, you know yeah. what I mean? But when you see, I'd be interested to know as, an, as a Flintstones fan, now that we've talked, once you watch my lecture, and then we can talk and have a really great discussion because pretty much everything that's in the old one is in the new one, but again, 23 years later, I'd like to think it's new and improved, you know? Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so... And then, we never even touched on Twilight Zone. That's a whole nother... Absolutely. Like I said, it's like I have many children. I love them all. <laughs> and, de and depending on the venue, you know, Saturday I'm talking about the Silvery. You know, last month I was talking about the Flintstones, you know? So, it's whatever venue and opportunity I have. But if you look at the range of my lectures... You know, I'm looking at it right now. You got Superman, Batman, Silver mm -hmm. Age. So you're everything. basically you're just like Joe, you're like the five stars of Joe Kuber, right? Well, it's tough being a Renaissance man, you know. <laughs> it's lonely at the top, Adam. What can I tell you? But yeah, I mean, but again, why did I? Why was I a Storanko fan? Look at Storanko. He's a comic artist. He's an illustrator. He's a designer. A writer. And he was one of my role models, and I'd like to think when you look at the work I've done, that I've followed in Saranko. I mean, it's not a fluke that he asked me to leave RISD and work for him. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at the work I've done, not just my illustration work, just like Saranko is not just his illustration work. So I'd like to think my career, since Saranko along with Adams were my two artistic role models, I'd like to think the work I've done the last 30 years or so has lived up to 
their work. Not that I would ever put myself on the same plane with them, but you know what I mean? I'd like to think that what I've done has followed in the footsteps of the great men who influenced me. Mm-hmm. But until you actually read or research my work, Adam, you wouldn't know, would you? <laughs> You know, I'm grading you like a professor, man. You've come to the class, but you didn't do your homework. Well, I guess I'll be better prepared next time, won't I? Uh, this is a podcast. I hope the next guy you interview, you actually do the research <laughs> on who you're talking to. You know, it's a form of respect, you know. You're right. How old are you? I'm 33. Okay, guess what, Mr. 33? You really need to do that, you know. You are correct. I mean, all kidding aside, you know, you can't interview somebody if you're not going to... you ever watch uh, Jiminy Glick, you know, Mike Myers, your yep. fellow Canadian? Yes, absolutely. Have you, seen, have you ever seen the Jiminy Glick skits? Are you calling me Jim, Jim, uh, Jiminy Glink? Uh, Glick? Hold on a second. <laughs> you know why I'm bringing up Jiminy Glick? Yeah. Why? Because he's never prepared? <laughs> But that was what made it funny. Yeah. You know, he would say, remember, he would be all curled up on that chair in that fat suit. Those, I, I, used to, I used to cry watching those and laughing, <laughs> you know. And, but what was hilarious is that in one, in one run-on sentence, he would say, so I hear you've done a new movie, which you know, of course, I haven't watched. And, but he would just continue on, like, and you're so excellent in it. And they would go, Jiminy, I haven't seen the movie. Oh, you know, I don't have to. I know you're excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've been the Jiminy Glick, yes, of this podcast. You, you fooled me into thinking you know my work. But what's that famous line in Woody Allen's Annie Hall? When he pulls Marshall McLuhan out? You know that scene from Annie Hall? I guess you know. I've seen it. I watched it two months uh, ago, and I already can't remember. Okay. Uh, that's a movie you need to... It's only his greatest film. Absolutely. My point is, there's that great scene where he's having that argument in the movie line about Marshall McLuhan with another moviegoer who thinks he knows about Marshall McLuhan, and Woody Allen says, "Hold on a second. And he goes behind the uh, you know big movie poster placard, and who does he pull out? Marshall McLuhan himself. And McLuhan goes to the other moviegoer, this famous you know line where he goes. You know, I've heard you talk about my work, and you know nothing about my work at all. And frankly, how you even achieve any position where you are is beyond me. (laughs) And Woody Allen turns to the camera and he goes, wouldn't it be great if life were really like this? (laughs) So what I'm telling you is in the role of entrepreneur, I'm saying, frankly, Adam, you know nothing of me and my work. And frankly, how you got this podcast without researching the person you're interviewing is beyond me. Now, I'm saying this to you as an older brother would say to a younger brother. Okay. Remember I told you you're the... Forget younger brother. I'm old enough to be your father, for Christ's sake. <laughs> you're, the, you're the son I've, ne- I've always wanted and never got. <laughs> okay, my son? Absolutely. You better do your homework. And it's for your own good. You are correct. You'll get a better interview, by the way. You will. No, you're absolutely correct. I apologize profusely. And then what happens when the interviewee cites something from his masterwork and you don't even know what I'm talking about? 
You see, it gets awkward in places. It can. Imagine interviewing Stanley Kubrick and not seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey. That would be uh Or interviewing Orson Welles and not seeing Citizen Kane. Apt comparisons, absolutely. Interviewing Rod Serling and not seeing The Twilight Zone. Yeah, well, and he, would say, he would say, you know, Adam, when I did that episode uh, to serve man, you've seen that, right? And you would go, um, I, I know about it, but I haven't seen it. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Can't do that. No. Every great writer will say, I never even wrote a word of my book until after like three years of research. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Great artists in any medium. I'm a big Howard Stern fan. I've been listening to Howard Stern since he came to New York 35 years ago. That guy does his research when he does his interviews, you know. Mm-hmm. He's got staff, but my point is, the people that he interviews, he knows their career. Yeah. So when he asks them questions, it's from, like, the great fan. Like, you need to be a fan of Arlen Schumer before you interview Arlen Schumer. You're right. Being a, fan, being a fan means, yeah, Arlen, I read your book. Yeah, I know about your talk. I watched your lecture. Oh, yeah, I did check that out. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying you got to know everything. No. But you got to know the main pieces of work if you're going to interview me. Even though we had a great interview, didn't we? I, I like to think so, but you, know, you, you are absolutely correct, and I could uh, easily give you some really good excuses, but I won't. I worked for Neil Adams. We didn't talk about this. You know, one remember I said I learned a lot about professionalism. Mm-hmm. Neil Adams had super high standards, as you can imagine. And unless you've worked for somebody with super high standards, you don't know what that's like. You know, maybe you had a great teacher or something. Maybe your own father. Who knows? Yeah. But for me, Neil Adams was the guy with the super high standards, and obviously, his work proves it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, working for him, one of the things I remember most was he says there's only two excuses for not either doing your work, completing your work. There's only two excuses for not doing whatever it is you promised you would do. And it really doesn't matter what it is. But if you as a man promise to do something, whether it's a work assignment or whatever, and you don't do it, or you do it at a poor level... You only have two excuses. One of them is physical injury. Okay. Meaning, if you're physically injured and you can't physically do it, Neil Adams will excuse you. Okay. The other one is if your father's in the hospital dying. Not your mother for some reason. I guess if your mother's dying, you got to keep your, doing your work. I don't know. But <laughs> there is a joke. But and the whole point is there are no excuses. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something. Once you know that, and do it over and over again and realize what that means, you begin to see how everybody in your life is full of excuses. 